You're listening to Anti-Racism in the Disciplines, the podcast that explores the complex histories of the liberal arts in order to reimagine their future. I'm your host, Brian Edwards, Dean of the School of Liberal Arts at Tulane University. In this episode, we'll talk about literary studies, featuring our guest Hortense J. Spillers, Gertrude Conaway Vanderbilt Professor of English and Distinguished Research Professor Emerita at Vanderbilt University. Dr. Spillers is an academic superstar whose work in Black studies, feminist theory, and American literature has made her one of the most influential critics of our time. Her essays are revelations. She is probably best known for her 1987 essay, Mama's Baby, Papa's Maybe, and American Grammar, which has been cited over 4,300 times as of early 2023 and become a touchstone for generations of scholars. Other of her famed articles, such as All the Things You Could Be By Now If Sigmund Freud's Wife Was Your Mother, and those collected in the major anthology Black, White, and In Color, are landmarks in Black feminist criticism. Welcome, Dr. Spillers. Well, hello. Well, hello. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. Good. So why don't we just have a conversation then and see where where it goes. And let's start by talking about the discipline of literary studies itself. And when you and I were corresponding, we discussed a variety of potential titles for this conversation. Mm -hmm. One might have structured as anti-racism in English. One was anti-racism in American literary studies. And we ended up with anti-racism in literary studies. So what to you does literary studies mean or entail in the United States? I think about that um, quite a lot. And to be honest with you, there have been times when um, I've been confused about what the mission was, because the confusion comes about in this way. I think that one of the fundamental problems of U.S. life today is a fundamental lack of literacy, cultural literacy, historical literacy, and perhaps even actual literacy. So that the question that I inchoately raise in the back of my mind is, well, what is it that literature is supposed to do? And so that means, is it um, an aesthetic function that it is serving Or is it doing something else and the aesthetic is a kind of bonus? Is our fundamental work to teach literacy, how to read, how to think about what you're reading, how to do what we call critical thinking? Or for lack of a better way of explaining this, how to write about what is important for you at the level of a college student and what does that entail? And so that's that's been my, it's not exactly a dilemma, but it's been a kind of astigmatism that's been introduced to my teaching over the years as I think, okay, it's important for them in my mind to learn how to read and enjoy and appreciate, let's say, Moby Dick, for instance, or Langston Hughes or Gwendolyn Brooks's poetry or Toni Morrison's novels. But that's a very important thing for me to try to teach them how to do. But there's a larger something 
that I'm trying to teach them to. And that's what's difficult to get a hold of. And I suppose I got close to solving that dilemma a couple of years ago when I taught an introduction to critical analysis, a section of that course here at Vanderbilt. And what the course had in it was a variety of genres and items connected to genres so that we had a fiction piece, which was Henry James's Portrait of a Lady. We had a film, All the King's Men. We had music, which was Beyonce's, one of Beyonce's long videos, um, box, cello suites, John Coltrane's Love Supreme. But then there was a nonfiction unit, which was the U.S. Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, right? So all of that was a part of this one course whose aim was to teach critical attention, expressing oneself in terms of making arguments, understanding arguments, dealing with concepts, and then just basic civic literacy, So it was an attempt to do all of those things at one time. So that when I think literary studies, I think in this kind of dual way that gets at a couple of motivations to teach literacy, generally speaking, and then to teach aesthetic appreciation or a kind of sophistication of understanding, dealing with, um, well, if literature invites us to fantasy, How do you measure that against actual living, right? I mean, what society in some places seems to have forgotten how to do? What's fantasy and what's real, right? I mean, it's an actual problem. So it's a complicated question. And I guess we don't talk about it enough, right? I like uh, this phrase, civic literacy, that you just introduced, what that might Mm -hmm. mean. I know as an English major as an undergraduate, the narrative was that we were being taught how to read. In that sentence, how to read was a deeper level of reading than most other disciplines seem to understand. And so I'm fascinated Mm -hmm. by the way you pose it. And so when we say English, I mean, both of the phrases that we've moved beyond here, English, anti-racism in English has a certain meaning to people in English departments. To explain to those who are not in English departments why there would be tension around even that phrasing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the the anti-racism piece is now fought for me, too, because um, my sense of what is happening in both higher education in the United States and education in general is that the discussions that we have had over the last uh, 40, 50 years about what is canonicity, how to expand it, who's represented in it, might have been more relevant at one time than it is today, because it strikes me that what's happening today may be something that we have not anticipated And that is not only are students not learning the canon, I mean, they're not learning much of anything else. I mean, they're not learning the traditional history of the United States. Say nothing of 
the actual history of the United States. I mean, in other words, I don't think that our students are getting certain basic lessons because there's been breakdown, serious breakdown at the level of the society. So we can't agree about anything. So that as I see it, it's not that students are not getting a Black history, the history of Indigenous people, the history of peoples of color. They're just not getting any history, period. Maybe that really is the problem that we're looking at today, which might be a greater problem than uh, racism, as difficult as that particular problem is. I mean, it certainly is a problem. Well, let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. I fundamentally disagree with the effort to suppress certain aspects of American history in the name of anti-racism. In other words, removing statues, tearing down statues of Confederate leaders or Confederate soldiers. I'm not sure that's a very good idea because if you're going to tear down those statues, I don't want somebody to come along a decade from now or a week from now and want to tear down Martin Luther King's likenesses. You see what I mean? So I'm saying, I think what you do is leave them in place, but you teach people why it is important not to valorize them or to turn them into heroes. And that's what I call giving people a sense of history that is larger than some siloed sense of history or some, this is my room over here and that's your room over there and your room makes me uncomfortable and I can't listen to you say this or that because that's going to impact me too. So that my idea is that if you teach people what the Confederacy is and was, how there once was a thing, but there is a morphed version of a neo-Confederacy today that has a lost cause, that it is now calling something else. So that if you teach those values, then people are not necessarily going to appreciate what the Confederate battle flag stands for. Because they know that 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 represents human degradation and suffering, and not just of those people who were shackled, but of the people doing the shackling. So that that's where the critical thinking, critical reading, that's where the criticism comes in. Hmm. So that I can pass a general forest statue all day long and it not mean anything to me. But that's so because somebody told me what those symbols meant when I was young enough to understand them and grew up, you know, elaborating my understanding of what American history means. And so I think that's the failing today as much as not getting at what it is that feeds racism. 
I mean, the very disturbing stories that we're hearing today about the resurgence of white supremacy, what is that about? On one level, the problem is enormous. On the other hand, I think it is the failure of critical thinking, critical reading. It is the failure of the education system to grab the imagination of very young people, especially young white people. We think that the problem is the education of peoples of color and the education of Black people. We think that that is an inferior product in the United States, and that might be true. But here's the comprehensive truth. The education of our children, period, is inferior in the United States, period. We have to confront that and do something about that. And whiteness does not save the children from that inferior outcome. So that I've got news for people if they think they're helping their children by ruling out critical race theory in schools, not talking about slavery. Uh, I mean, it's kind of like not talking about evolution. If you think that's going to save your children, that's mistaken. Because what happens, it seems to me, is that you foster literacy all along the waterfront when you do that. If you say, I'm going to burn these books over here, then you're burning up ideas, period, because those ideas relate to all the other ideas in the world. So this is what people fail to understand. So what is this thing about the resurgence of white supremacy? I see really ugly video of young white men giving the Hitler salute. What is this fascination with Hitler? That's another example of the confusion between dreamscape, fantasy life, and living living your life. I think that it's the failure of criticism, the failure generally of critique in American society, more broadly speaking. Racism plays into that picture to me, but it belongs to a much wider picture so that we're talking about the re-education of a whole society, right? And not just re-educating it along certain lines of stress, but a total re-education. There's no reason in the world why the 1619 Project should be seen in some polar opposition to 1789. Right. To 1776. What the hell is that about? There was a 1619. 1619 makes 1776 possible. Mm-hmm. Which makes 1865 possible. Mm-hmm. Which makes 1965 possible. It's all connected. That's what I would like to see, a deeper understanding of how American life, whatever its nuances are, how American life is interconnected, intersubjective, cross-racial. I mean, all those fault lines that we now speak of along 
siloed lines of critique need to find, so far as I am concerned, some unified field theory. Well, I guess what I'm thinking as I'm listening to you speak is that there is something about literary studies that contributes to our understanding. I'm trying to get at that. We know that, and we have statistics that tell us that students are moving away from English majors or literature majors. Mm -hmm. Uh, And yet, in the context of the larger conversation that I'm staging across the disciplines, it seems to me that -hmm. literary studies has some way of addressing the question of anti-racism or of the many issues that you're raising that is particular. Is literature the space where we understand fantasy or affect or affective spaces in a particular way that we couldn't through other approaches? Is it also a sort of, just listening to what you said, a kind of evidence, a kind of archive of, of experience from historical moments? Yeah. I mean, I suppose that's a new historicist way of arguing for the importance of reading that it gives Mm -hmm. us evidence that other types of texts could not. Yeah. What is it about literary studies? You know, I think maybe one thing that's going on with uh, literary studies, which I think people have recognized uh, by the thousands over the years, is that the longer you stay in it, you know, your whole understanding uh, sort of shifts and you gain a vocabulary or repertoire of concepts for comparing things and ways of talking about things. But the thing that I think is so deeply appealing about literary studies is its narrative function, right? That's how it draws us in. What it allows us to do and I know that it's not sophisticated thinking, but sophistication really goes out the window when we get involved in a literary text. The feelings get engaged about this thing called living. Those characters become people, right? They are real for us and they live for us. We are invested in them and I think what it allows us to do, um, take sides, get in arguments and disputes, have feelings, loves, hates, none of the above investments without paying a price. And I think that's, I think that's the value of the literary. What it has in common with our lives is that it allows us to see ourselves on a larger stage in some surrogate way. And that's what imitation does, or mimesis does, right? I mean, it shows us life. It gives us the license to live a life without having to be punished or to go through what we're reading about. And I think that's where the lessons come from that uh, we are able to see life in a kind of wholeness that we cannot experience because we're living it. So that to see it, you know, vicariously given on the page, I mean, that's, uh, that's the whole ball game. I mean, that's, that's, the, <laughs> that's the theater of it, right? Right there. 
It strikes me that when I listed a sequence of options for what the literary studies provides to this discussion, I also mm-hmm. kind of quickly enumerated different schools or different periods of critical theory, you know, close reading and deconstruction mm-hmm. and post-structuralism and then new historicism, affect right. studies. And as we know, with, within English departments, those have been fraught battles and kind of generational struggles and so on. So let me ask you, just because of your experience in the field and in the discipline, Mm -hmm. I've always been struck sitting in an English department for a couple of decades, Mm -hmm. how the fault lines sometimes within those departments between the, well, for a while, the so-called Americanists, you know, and then the rest of the department, and then even then the creative writers or the post-colonialists, you know, played Mm -hmm. out some of those battles, let's say. I'm curious how you see that structural history, I don't want to say structural, but Mm -hmm. um, within the discipline as we live it in departments, as we fight those fight curricular discussions and so on. Have you felt that in your career at different institutions Mm -hmm. playing out? I have. And sometimes it's been um, painful to participate in or to be on the sidelines of or to be in the discussion as a newcomer on the block. I'm remembering my first job. And in that particular context, the English professors or the professors of British literature actually seem to think that the Americanists were something of imposters. And for both of them, the African-Americanists were, of course, imposters. So, yeah, I've seen it play out. And I've been in the business long enough to see the whole scene turn over. In other words, where the discussion was, 50 years ago, when I started in higher education, is not a conversation that is possible today because the terms have completely changed. And the terms have changed because the battle changed, because people were in battle. You know, people uh, weren't awarded tenure and some hires weren't made and people got fired and It's been a lot of heartbreak over that 50-year period, but you cannot have those discussions today about the superiority of British literature. You can't even speak about British literature in those terms anymore. You might talk about Englishes. I've heard people pluralize that. I have heard People talk about different kinds of English, but that discussion that I heard being waged in the late 60s, early 70s in predominantly white institutions in English departments is not a conversation that we could have today. And we could not have it today because, how to put this, the structuralists one. The discourse analysis one, the new criticism one. I mean, all those criticisms that we associate with 1966 and changes in higher education between 1966 and 1968, 
the structuralist controversy forward with that revolution that really sweeps across a lot of the Western world, that the changes that were instituted and instaurated with that intellectual movement that happened to match up quite beautifully with political movement and youth movement in the world, particularly the United States and Europe, all of that brought about changes in the Humanities Academy and the way we read everything, starting with literature and literary texts and what we say about them. So I would say that the structure of the English major has changed and that the dissertation that I wrote at Brandeis University in 1974, Fabrics of History, which was a study of the rhetoric of the Black Sermon, whose first chapter read James Baldwin's Go Tell It on the Mountain as a sermon, and which is going to be brought out as a book by Duke University Press in 2023. (laughs) Because it was turned down by 14 publishers in 1974-75. Wow. (laughs) That that dissertation and dissertations like it really became the kind of norm for English departments. I mean, today, English departments uh, produce dissertations that you wouldn't think an English department would produce. I'm remembering a dissertation, and a very good one, that was produced out of English at Vanderbilt two or three years ago. The writer looked at narratives from indigenous communities in Massachusetts and the law around this particular indigenous community, right? So that that's really not about, oh, Jane Austen or symbolism in Moby Dick, right? I mean, you've got a movement that uh, really expanded the vision for what the English department was. So that, yeah, the structure of the major, the structure of what we study, the way we study it has all shifted since the late 60s, early 70s. Although, you know, that said, I have certainly witnessed in the 2000s and the 2010s as a faculty member, some real, as you put it, resistance to and kind of horrible things said in the Mm -hmm. privacy of hiring meetings or tenure meetings around those quote unquote newer fields, newer fields because the archives are newer, not necessarily because the approach to reading is newer. And so I suppose I'm wondering whether the discipline is haunted by, maybe that's too strong a word, or maybe it's the wrong word, but if it's haunted by those structures that are embedded in Mm -hmm. the debates pre-1966, or even going further before the discipline comes to the United States. I mean, as you say, I can think of, you know, stories in my career in which American literature itself was considered new and the imposter. And then Mm -hmm. so-called women's literature movement, uh, African-American literature movement, Latinx, all finding their way into those. Really, I don't think people realize outside how vivid those fights were within yeah. the department. So the question is today, I mean, I agree that it's wonderful to see some of the work coming out of English departments. Is the discipline haunted by those structures? And if so, how does one see it? I think haunting really is the right term. 
And I would say a couple of things about that. One of them is that, as I see it, the authority figure has changed clothes. In other words, who's on the defensive now is the tradition, the so-called canonical tradition. That's on the ropes now, rather than uh, the new kid on the block, right? And it's the new kid on the block that tends to be the authority, so much so that what you're getting now is something that is not necessarily so desirable. It's a kind of repression effect, right? I mean, those people that you spoke of a moment ago who in the quiet and the hush and the secrecy of certain meetings express their feelings, that's become the repressive side now, right? They are the ones who end up apologizing for not necessarily understanding the vocabulary of LGBTQ+, right? That's just an example of what I'm talking about. That's not desirable either. And perhaps we're going to reach a point one day where it is possible to actually have a discussion about not so much a hierarchy as a sea of literary objects, because it seems to me what we have now is a new hierarchy that simply placated positions or changed positions with the old hierarchy. And I don't think that's necessarily a superior outcome, right? I mean, I think that's problematic in its own way, right? So it's not by any means over, even though I think, at least in my way of understanding it and from everything that I've seen, those traditional fields have begrudgingly taken a backseat or a second place and they recognize it. And I don't think that's that's a good thing. I mean, at the moment in my own department, quote, early modernists are not very happy about certain changes that they see on the horizon and the attitude of administrators towards what's happening in English departments. I mean, they really see their fields being squeezed out by presentism or contemporary studies, and I don't think that's good. So how do we learn a kind of balance that we haven't figured out yet? I mean, in other words, how do you dismantle hierarchy and talk dialogically about what's possible in literary studies? And I don't think we've quite reached that point yet. On a sort of hopeful note, you know, some of the schools of literary studies now that you get positioned between or within. So I want to ask you how you see the relationship between anti-racism, this practice, and Afro-pessimism and Afro-futurism. Or really, you know, I've heard some interesting discussions with you where people are positioning your work in ways that you don't necessarily agree with in one or the others. How does your work figure in relation to these two contemporary ways of thinking about the future? First of all, not everyone really outside the field understands what Afro-pessimism should be understood to be or Afro-futurism. Yeah. Um, 
You know, for me, Afro-pessimism is a supremely conservative way of viewing the world because it monumentalizes the world. And by that, I mean, it turns us all into tableaus, figures that are frozen in time. And so we are trans-historical because uh, we are still acting out some social text that was concocted or written long before we arrived on the scene. We're still acting that out. My idea is to radically open the future and not to assume that I am always going to be a victim or that I am always going to claim social death, right? I don't believe that. And as I see it, the Afro-pessimists have taken a historical circumstance and reified it. They've taken a historical condition, something that was bounded in time and have reified it, made it an existential posture. For me, there is no such thing as a slave other than some kind of abstract notion. There are people who were enslaved. And once you speak of them as people who were enslaved, you can imagine people who were not enslaved, right? Mm-hmm. You can imagine history changing. And so that's where I think I disagree with the Afro-pessimists. I don't think I'm overreading them or misreading them. I think my reading of a kind of reification, I think I understand why that is the case. What they want to do is open a situation where it is possible to address oppressive circumstance. And so you have to point out differences along a historical trajectory in order to be able to open that conversation. So I think I understand why they take the tact that they take, the gambit that they employ uh, is employed or deployed. I think I understand that. But I think it goes too far in the sense that it wants to say that circumstances are such that existentially speaking, I am the same today as I was a hundred years ago and will be the same a hundred years from now. I think that's an error. And that's what I mean by trans-historicizing or monumentalizing. And that is not being open to the future, right? I mean, radically open the future, then you have not affected closure. I think they've reached closure. And that's why I call it a stop sign. Stop. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Boom. Yeah. You put a stake in the ground right there. And I'm thinking, no, it's a teleological reading. It's a theological reading. It has all of that going for it. You know, I mean, it's kind of like Barack Obama becomes president of the United States. And that's like, okay, 
that is the answer to our dreams come true. Well, not really, right? I mean, it's maybe one of the stations of the cross. So that rather than being a point of arrival, it's a point of departure. You want to depart from there into the future, not stop there as if something has been answered. It hasn't, right? I mean, it's a node or a plateau or something like that, right? I mean, so I want to open the future, not close it. Yeah. Yeah. I really like the way you're opening up for the future. And so generatively, in so many ways, the work that you're doing really does generate so many openings, which is another way of thinking of the future, too. Hortense, you're amazing. I love talking with you um, and learning from you. Thank you so much. Um, It's wonderful to be here, Brian. If you liked this podcast, help us spread the word. Tell your friends, teachers, or students, or share it on social media. And let us know how you are contributing to anti-racist scholarship and teaching at our website, liberalarts.tulane.edu slash anti-racism and the disciplines podcast. I'm your host, Brian Edwards. This podcast was produced by Gabriela Garcia Mays. Original music is by Corey Diane. Our production assistant was Maggie Green.